So um, I'm going to pray, and then we're going to jump into Matthew chapter 4. Let me pray. Lord, um, I just pray for this morning. Uh, I just pray that with all the things that are kind of going on in life and the busyness, that we would take a minute here to stop and kind of collect our thoughts, get our minds focused on hearing from you. That we wouldn't just come here and, and let it be kind of a, another thing that we've done um, and breeze by and, and go out to lunch. and But really stop and contemplate the truth, which is you wrote this book, which means we're going to hear from the God of the universe this morning. That's reason to pause. That's reason to stop and slow down our busy life and really consider what you might be telling us this morning. So Lord, I, I pray for myself. That is <laughs> it's intimidating to even think about. And so I pray for myself, God, that you would help me speak with clarity and that every word I say would be yours. Not one would be mine. God, I pray that you would fill me with the Spirit and let me um, preach the gospel this morning of Christ. I pray that you would fill us all here in the room with the Holy Spirit so that we can receive, including myself, receive what you would want us to hear from you this morning. Jesus, this time is yours and we give it over to you. And we ask that you would be glorified through this as we study your word and that it would not just be an academic exercise, but an exercise of the soul where we leave hoping in the gospel and loving Christ more fully. Be with us now as we look into your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Matthew chapter 4. I'm just going to read the text and then we're going to go ahead and go through it. Um, and I'll, I'll make some comments along the way. Matthew chapter 4. This is the temptation of Jesus. I'm sure you've heard it. If you've been in church at all, this is when uh, Christ was, was tempted by the devil. Chapter 4. I'm going to try my hardest not to say the devil, you know, like in the... Adam Sandler movie. Um, then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry, obviously. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to a holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you're the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command His angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him again, It is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountaintop and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these... I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. The devil then left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. Now, if you remember, the last verse which we studied last week is going to be crucial for us as we're going into our, the last set of, you know, few verses that we saw are going to be crucial as we go into this time of temptation. If you see in, in, in chapter 3, verse 
16 and 17, this is the baptism of Jesus, where the Trinity is there, and it says, um, And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending on him like a dove and coming to rest on him. So we see the Spirit here um, resting on Christ and assuring Christ and everyone there that this is the, the Son of God, the Messiah, and Jesus can have complete um, assurance that he is um, filled with the Spirit and ready to go into ministry. We see Christ uh, now in this chapter 4 really preparing for ministry. And this was in, in verse 13 was the first time we see Jesus kind of step into what would be His full-time ministry now. And then it says in 17, and this is, this is key, And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Now, I read a quote from John Piper last week, and I'm going to read it again in case you aren't here. Um, and this is, this is really important, because it would be the thought of all of us um, right after we are told um, that this is your ministry, Christ, you're ready to walk into it, and then the ne- very next thing is all the attacks from Satan, we must think, well, I must be you know, out of the will of God, or I must be out of the favor of God. This is what John Piper said. One of the wonderful effects of these words, which is, my be- this is my beloved son, son with whom I am well pleased, one of the wonderful effects of these words is to assure Jesus and us that the fire of misery and pain that Jesus was about to walk into, namely temptation straight from the devil, um, was not owing to his father's displeasure. So as we're walking into this, know that Jesus is not out of the favor of God, rather fully in the favor of God. If you even see here in four, um, four one, it says, Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. We see that the Spirit led him over there. As a matter of fact, um, Luke chapter 4, which is the, the same account here, the parallel account, says that Jesus was full of the Spirit and led by the Spirit to go in there. So we know that um, this is not because of uh, anything else beside the hand of God leading him to be tempted. So Luke's letting us know, Matthew's wanting us to know that this is, this is uh, God's will for him to go and to be tempted. Now here's, here's one, little, uh, one little interesting thing about the word tempt. Because a lot of times here in our English, um, we always think of the word to, to mean to tempt to do evil. That's, that's how it's kind of placed in our language. Um, but in Greek and Hebrew, um, this word tempt really just means to test or to prove. So it can include temptation to do evil, but also it can be a means by just showing, by testing to show value or good quality. So this temptation or this testing of Jesus here, in this case, is to show good quality. Therefore, Jesus' temptation, or temptation in our lives as well, doesn't mean that we aren't full of the Spirit or that the Spirit isn't leading us when temptation comes. It can mean that He is um, there to show us that He is going to give us victory through this. He's going to test and show the good qualities of us, which are only going to be the good qualities of Christ. So as we, as we go through these things, we ought to know that. Now... Um, a couple questions as I as I go through this um, chapter four kind of kind of pop off the, the pages to me, and so um, I'm gonna I'm gonna throw the questions out there, and then as we go through this, we're gonna study and we're gonna see um, what this is. Um, first thing is why fast to prepare for temptation? What's the importance of fasting here to prepare yourself to be tempted? Um, and so I'm reading, and because uh, I didn't know. Um, and so one of the commentators, and I think this is this is a uh, an excellent insight, is that 
He is going to acquire authority by being separated from the ordinary conditions of men. In other words, what he says is this is God's, um, God has appointed Christ's, Christ's fasting to seal the gospel. While, while Christ goes out and fasts for 40 days, which is a long time to go without food. I mean, that's a long time. Um, he is acquiring authority as he's doing this because he's obeying the word of God. He's obeying God's commandment to go out and do this. And he's acquiring authority for himself that as he goes through this, we can all know that God has given Christ all authority. That's, that's the whole point in Matthew 28. All authority has been given to me to go. Now you, as my disciples, my, my, my ones that I'm sending, go. So Christ is um, gaining or acquiring for himself authority by fasting. Now the next thing is this. Um, why... The first, in regard to the first temptation, this is one that I've really struggled for a long time. Why is turning stone into bread a sin? Why is that a sin? That doesn't seem, eating's not a sin. So why is it turning stone into bread a sin? Now, we know in John 2 that he turns water into wine. So is God just like pro-liquid and anti-solid? Like, don't do anything with solids that are miracle-wise. Um, that's not the case. And we're going to actually get to that. I'm going to leave that out there to why turning stone into bread seems to be a sin here, but probably wouldn't be a sin at another time. Um, but here's another one. And this is really one of the biggest ones. And I'm not going to spend much time. I'm just going to get everybody confused and, and then we're going to keep going, or at least me. Um, could Jesus have sinned here? Could Jesus have sinned? There's a big theological term, and I always just thought it was a weird word, um, impeccability. Um, it just comes from the Greek word pekar, so to sin. Did Jesus have the ability to sin? Um, the, the two ways they say it, that he was able not to sin or he was not able to sin. And which one is it? Um, I'm not going to really say anything but, but this. Um, I don't think Jesus was able to sin. And I, I, some people would say he was, and I know the arguments from Hebrews 4.15, and we can talk about it later, but um, I think because he was also 100% God, that there was, um, he had the ability not to sin, plus he didn't have a corrupt human nature like us. Um, but I'm not minimizing Hebrews 4.15, where he says um, that he um, has understood temptation just like us in every way. So I understand that text, but I think that he was not able to sin here. Now, that's just throwing it out there, and we'll keep moving. Um, we're going to move into the narrative here of chapter one, I'm sorry, chapter four, and really try to unpack this and understand what's going on here. Now, one of the things that we need to know is Matthew, which I've said this over and over, is writing to a Jewish audience who knew the Old Testament thoroughly. And so as he's writing this, um, he's wanting them to see that there are some themes that are he is pulling from the Exodus and from the book of Exodus um, that that are being brought into this narrative. And, and these are hard for us to see, but they're apparently clear for them to see. And what he's wanting them to see is that in the Old Testament, where Israel um, wasn't able to fulfill the, the role that God had given them, Jesus is the truer and better Israel and how he does this. Let's just look at some of the similarities um, from Moses and the Exodus and from here, and maybe you'll start seeing these things. Um, first of all, it says that in verse 1, that he was led out into the wilderness. We know that the people of Israel were also led into the wilderness. Um, we see that Jesus was there for 40 days and 40 nights, and we see that the people of Israel were in the wilderness for 40 years. Um, we see that there's a temptation with bread, and we're actually going to see some connections even to Genesis 1 here as well. Um, there was temptations with, with turning stone into bread. The people lived um, in the wilderness waiting to be supplied every day by manna from God. And so... This temptation here to eat food is, is showing that God is the one who's going to provide for you every day. 
That's why he says you should live by, by not by bread alone, but by the word of God. Um, just like in, in Exodus, as well as this whole, this whole story right here is kind of screaming back or saying, hey, go look at Genesis as well. Don't forget Genesis where we see um, Adam and Eve were also the ones who were tempted with food and failed. But Jesus here is tempted with food, but triumphs. And so Jesus is not only the truer and better Israel from Exodus, but Jesus is also the truer and better Adam from Genesis. And so for us, we're like, are you sure that's all there, Fudd? You sound like you're kind of stretching it out, making a little bit of a big deal here. Well, um, this was actually completely evident to the people of Israel. That Matthew is writing these things, warning them to see that this, is, um, this Christ, this man Jesus, is the Messiah, the one who's been talked about in the Old Testament. So he's going to do all he can through the scriptures to continually point them back to the Old Testament scriptures to let them see that Jesus is the fulfillment of all these things in the Old Testament. All right. Now, whenever I was in seminary, um, I had to, I took the class called hermeneutics and basically they would just give you texts and they would say, you know, write a sermon or Find out the main idea of this and write it out and, and tell us what it is. You know, kind of like an expository sermon. Pick the, pick the points of the sermon and, and put it out there. So, and I wrote it as this. Um, I thought this was the three temptations and how we can fight temptation. And I thought that was pretty clever because there was three temptations. It's pretty easy. Just throw a little poem on the end and you got a nice little Baptist sermon. So, um, I thought it was it, but, uh, I, I submitted it in. Uh, how to fight temptation like Jesus. And so he wrote back to me and he said, while this, this text can be used in application sense um, to talk about temptation, I think you're missing the bigger picture of what this text is about. And I was like, what? Come on, man. This is so obvious. I thought I had it, and, um, and I didn't have it. Um, and so he wrote me back um, uh, with a little thing on there, like, this is how you can actually see it. Notice some stuff. And so um, this is what he said, and this is, this is really good. All right, first of all, look at verse 3. If you are the Son of God. And then we're going to see it as well in verse 6. If you are the Son of God. Now, if you remember back in the genealogies, we see in the very first sentence of the book of Matthew, the book of the genealogy, Jesus Christ, the Son of David, the Son of Abraham. And now Matthew's picking up, not, as, not only is he the Son of David and the Son of Abraham, right here in verse 3 and verse 6, the Son of God. So, while this has some things to tell us about temptation, the bigger picture of what we're trying to see here is that Jesus is the proven Son of God. He is the Messiah. So as we're looking at these temptations, these temptations aren't necessarily, although there's application, the bigger point that Matthew's trying to make is not for us to grab, oh, that's how I fight temptation. The bigger point that he's trying to make in all three of these things is, here's one way to see that Jesus is the proven Son of God. Here's the second way you can see that Jesus is the proven Son of God. And that is far more important for us. Let me just kind of explain why that's far more important. If we have just three things about how to fight temptation, then that's a man-centered text, and that's going to help us know how to fight temptation, which is helpful. But if we can see that this is much bigger, it's not just about us, but this is a bigger thing about Jesus. This is all about God and about how He is the proven Messiah. He is the one that is the Son of God. Well, then... That's who we put our, all our hope in. The only way we're going to fight temptation, the only way we're going to be forgiven, the only way we're going to find how to kill sin in our life or live a Holy Spirit-filled life is because of Jesus, the Son of God. So it's far more important that this text is about Him than about us. Although there is ample application, and I'm going to try to hopefully point a lot of these things out. Um, so the main idea here of the text is that Jesus is the proven Son of God. So verse 1, Then Jesus was led 
by the Spirit, so we see that this is totally the Spirit's leading, into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil, the diablos, um, the slanderer, the accuser. And he is appearing here for one reason and for one reason only. His desire, because he knows the Scriptures, is to stop, to do everything he can to make not happen the rescuing of mankind. He does not want to re- for redemption um, or reconciliation to sinners back to the Father to happen. And he knows if he can cause sin here, well then Jesus is no longer the perfect sacrifice to go to the cross. So he has one purpose, to cause Jesus to sin, to end everything and in, in, in his mind, win everything, which, I mean, come on. This isn't like um, a thing where Yahweh and, and the Diablos are are equal in power. This is God has never been created. God has always been, and the devil is a created being, and he has no power. He is a dog on a leash who only is allowed to do what, the, what God allows him to do. And God has him, and he wants to yank him back, then he'll yank him back. So, um, but the devil, of course, <clears throat> as we know, sinned, trying to be as great as God, kicked out of heaven, and a third of the angels. And so all he's wanted to do the entire time is to bring as many of us down with him. So may we pray God would be gracious to us. All right, here we go. So the first thing is that he comes to to uh, Christ to tempt him. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, the most obvious sentence in the whole Bible, after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, if you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered... This is what Christ answered. It is written. Just notice, every time he says it is written, it is written right here in verse 3. He's going to say it again in verse 7. He's going to say it again in verse 10. It is written, it is written, it is written. Pointing us to the necessity of knowing the Scriptures. It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. So the first thing that he's wanting us to see in this temptation is Jesus is the proven Son of God, or the proven Son of God triumphs over Satan's temptation to sin in regard to eating the forbidden food. Remember, this is being written to Israel. Israel knew the Old Testament Scriptures. And so they understood where Israel had failed and tried to keep manna and and then it spoiled. They understood that that Adam himself had tried to... um, was tempted for um, eating fruit and that he failed. And so he's helping them see here that Jesus is the greater Israel where they failed in, in the wilderness and had to stay there for 40 years. Um, and Jesus is the greater Adam, where he does not give in to the temptation of food like Adam, that they can trust that this Christ, this man, Jesus, is the Messiah. He is the proven Son of God and triumphs over Satan's temptation in regard to food. So, why is it that making bread from a, from a stone seems to be a sin? Well, it's not, but that's not the full depth here of the temptation. The full depth of the understanding of the nature of this temptation is this. The ultimate sin that could happen is that Jesus would not trust or believe God at His Word. That's what He's tempting Him to do. It's not trust or believe God at His Word. He's trying to persuade Christ to depart away from the Word of God. Well, how can we say that? Like, how do you know that? I I think we can see that because of Christ's answer. Christ's answer is the thing that helps us see. It's not all about stones and bread. Notice his answer. Man should not live by bread alone, but here, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. So he's warning 
Um, he's wanting us to see, Christ is wanting us to see that we are to live by every word that comes from the mouth of the God. We are always to trust and believe God at His word. That's the temptation here. So the devil is lying and saying, you don't need to, you don't need to worry about that kind of stuff. Just make some, sto- make some food out of, this, out of this stone and you'll be fine. And you, can, you don't have to worry about this hunger pain. And Christ tells him, it is written, we should live by the word of God. So what we should see here is this. Some, some takeaways that we can get from this are, um, number one, whenever we're spiritually hungry, or really at all times, even when we're not spiritually hungry, we always need God's word. We need God's word constantly in our life. We must depend on God's word every single day in our life. There's not days where we can, and though we do this all the time, I'm sure, kind of take a break or allow ourselves to forget because there are everyday temptations coming to us. And if Christ himself uses the word of God to combat temptation, Christ himself, well, then we always should. So we should know the word of God. And also, we should trust. We should trust that we can live by every word that comes out of the mouth of God. We need to trust God that his word is what, it's, what he says it is. So let me give you a couple of scriptures here that let us, let us see these kinds of things. First of all, in Ephesians um, 6, this won't be on the screen, but Ephesians six seventeen, where he's talking about the armor of God. Everything is a defensive weapon except for one thing that's an offensive weapon. He calls it the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. So the word of God is our only offensive weapon. So we need to know it. Here's some more things about trusting the sufficiency of God. This is in 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy chapter 3. Paul's talking to Timothy and he's telling him how he can understand what the word of God is. And this is what he says. From childhood, talking to Timothy, Paul talking to Timothy. From childhood, Timothy, you have been acquainted with the sacred scriptures. Look at what these things do for you. Look, look how we can trust the sufficiency of scripture. You have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. So the scriptures can help us know how to be saved. Further, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for. These, this is what the scriptures can do. This is what they're sufficient in being able to do. They're profitable for teaching. They're profitable for reproof. They're profitable for correction. They're profitable, look at this, for training in righteousness. We all want to know how to be more righteous. We all want to know how to be more Christ-like. We need to trust that the scriptures are what we need. That we need to, just like Christ is saying, live on every word that comes out of the mouth of God, which we have in the Bible. That the man of God may be competent, equipped for every single good work. So we need to memorize as much as we can. Now some of us, I mean, we are, we are challenged when it comes to memorization. It's just, <laughs> it is difficult for us. Um, and I would say this. Never discount yourself from being able to memorize. You, you might have a tough time. It, you might be 50 years old now and you might say, I'm too old to start you're never too old to start memorizing the Word of God. And if it's just a verse a day, or if it's just a verse a week, a week you need to be actively involved in memorizing Scripture. Um, pushing yourself beyond what you're doing right now. Um, I'm not sure where you are into this. Maybe, maybe you memorize Scripture. Man, I know some guys that are just like memorization machines, and I, I hear them just spout off the book of James, and I'm like, I just need to quit. I'm not even going to try. (laughs) You're so good at it. Why should I even try? But um, I I think, and actually I know, that as we memorize Scripture, the Holy Spirit, whenever temptation comes, 
He brings those texts that we've been memorizing back to recollection and uses those things. That's what the point of Psalm 119.13. I have stored up, I've treasured, but I like the word stored up. I have stored up your word that I might not sin against you. We, we, if we're honest, we don't want to sin against God. So we need to store up the word of God. So I'm hoping that this little challenge is, is landing on you in a way that's encouraging you. You know what? I want to. I want to memorize the Word of God. And I would just say, don't just kind of say, yeah, I'm going to do it. Set some goals. Like, I'm going to memorize Philippians by July 14th. I'm going to memorize um, this amount of verses by, you know, the summer. I would set a real tangible goal and start working towards that. And find someone. Find your wife or find your best friend that will start doing that with you. Um, whenever I was in... Actually, I just graduated from college. A guy named, and I just, I'm going to give away like how smart both of us were. My nickname's Fudd, and his nickname's Jughead. Um, and so, I mean, we're not the brightest bulbs in the box, but we started getting together um, on Tuesday and Thursday mornings. I had, I had a late start on Tuesday, Thursday mornings. I'd have to be at work till 11. And so we would get together, I think over the course of a month, maybe two, um, we started memorizing the book of Colossians. And by... Ten meetings, ten meetings, we had already memorized Colossians 1 and going into Colossians 2. Our schedules changed, but God blessed that. Like, we, we memorized, I can't believe I memorized a chapter of the Bible. It was insane to think, think about. And this all was kind of coupled with something else that had happened in my life. Whenever I was eight, I came to Christ, but I just kind of knew the scriptures, like the Bible stories from Sunday school, but I'd really never memorized. And so, well, let me take one little step back. Because all I've talked about here is by living on the Word of God is by memorizing. I want to also couple that with with reading. We're still in the new in the new part of the year here. We've had um, Bible reading plans out there on the table, and I encourage you to go grab one. Um, don't forget if you need to go over there right now, go get it. But um, coupled with memorizing, we should also have reading the scriptures. Like we we need to be in the scriptures reading. Whether we're memorizing all those verses, we need to be in them every day. God's going to take the reading and the memorizing of the scriptures to help us combat temptation. So whenever I was eight, I got saved. And um, I never really understood the value of reading. I didn't even really have, now that I look back, um, the desires that I, I, I should have had in reading. And so I kind of floundered around life from about eight till about 21, where God did a miraculous work in my life, where um, something just happened around age 21, where he awoken, awaked, Awakened desires. I'm, I'm bad with that and rise, like conjugating the word rise. In the resurrection, when it's around Easter, I'm a mess. Like he rose, he rised, he rised. From, anyway, so 8 to 21, um, nothing. But all of a sudden, God gave me these desires within me. I just couldn't believe what happened. Like all of a sudden, I wanted to read the scriptures. And so I would go to the scriptures and I'm reading stuff that I kind of was, it's like a, a puzzle that doesn't have all the pieces but you kind of know what's going on there and then all of a sudden more pieces were applied as i read it and all of a sudden i could see the picture i'm like this is unbelievable like this book is amazing and as soon as that happened i had more desires so maybe you're kind of in there where you're like want to read the bible but there never doesn't seem desires to do it i'm just going to say submit yourself to a month of doing it grab the book of mark or john or just grab a gospel um, and, and read it mark it's the shortest one um, and just read it and see if after that the Holy Spirit doesn't take your reading and couple that with and give you this deep desire to start knowing his word. One of the things that we need to see here is, yes, Jesus is the proven son of God who triumphs over the forbidden fruit sin, but he, 
He quotes, let every word that comes out of the mouth of the Lord is what we should live by. And we need to have this kind of mindset as Christians where we are reading and memorizing Scripture continually. So I just want to challenge you. You can do this. I promise you. It doesn't matter if you've been bad at it for the last 10 years. Now's the day to say, I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. And don't be legalistic and don't punish yourself if you miss a day. Just come the next day and do it again. Like, if you miss a day, you miss a day. God's not angry at you. He's never going to be angry at you. Romans 8.1, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. You are not condemned because you missed a day of Bible reading. Just let that amaze you and then let that be the the gas or the fuel that drives you back in by joy of of doing it the next day. So that's the first thing. Um, We need to... We need to be the people that read his word and memorize. And, and here's one other thing about temptation. This is um, from 1 Corinthians 10. When temptation comes, this is, this is a promise from his scriptures and very, um, in my mind, very helpful in knowing that when temptation comes, I have the power to see, to get through this without sinning. This is 1 Corinthians 10, 13. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation He has, He will also provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. So, you may feel right now that the temptations in regard to this certain sin are unbearable. You have no way out. You have to give in to it. Like, the temptation to gossip about this person, the temptation to be physical with your girlfriend, boyfriend, the temptation to not be able to lead your family well or love your husband well or serve your wife well or whatever. There's, there's all kinds of temptations that are coming. I, I cannot do it. Um, <laughs> or the temptation to, there's a person that's so hard to love. I'm going to not love them because they drive me crazy. There's a temptation that I can't do it. And this text is telling you, you can there is no temptation that you cannot be that you cannot get through. God is faithful. He would not let you be tempted beyond your ability. That right there is amazing. That is amazing. So he will always provide a way of escape. So when temptation comes, we press deeper into Christ, not run away. All right, so here's the next thing. Verse 5. So that's the first one. The second one. Then the devil took him to a holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple. And said to him, now this is strange, I just want to point this out. Um, in Luke, the, the second and the third temptation are switched, and Matthew puts them this way. I don't know why, but anyway. Alright, so then the devil took him to the holy temple, uh, to the holy city, and set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, If you are the Son of God, see, Matthew wanting us to make sure we see that, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you. In your Bible, it's probably quoted out into a little block. That's because Satan is quoting scripture here namely psalm 91 verses 11 and 12 satan is taking the scriptures um, and saying um, i'm going to use the scriptures to distort them to make my my thing happen so he points out to jesus hey if you're the son of god throw yourself down for it's written he will command his angels concerning you and on their hands they will bear up bear you up lest you strike your foot against the stone and jesus answered it is written you shall not put the lord your god to the test all right what's going on here what does this mean um, basically what's going on here is this. Satan's saying, all right, um, I know the scriptures and I know that you're supposed to go to the cross. I know that you're supposed to be the savior of the world. I know that no matter what, um, you can't die. So what you should do is just go up here on this mountain and throw yourself off. Just throw yourself off because the scriptures say you're supposed to go to the cross and, 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 
and die for everybody's sin. So no matter what, if you jump off the off this high um, pinnacle, then something's going to happen where God's going to intervene and save you. We'll see a sign. So he will command his angels concerning you. The angels will, will flash down here and grab you right before you hit like Superman and grab you before you hit the, the ground. And he on their hands, they will bear you up lest you strike a foot against... It's kind of like, you know, in Groundhog Day where Bill Murray just keeps stepping in front of the bus and the next day he wakes back up. I'm Here I am again. It's one of those things like, just do that. Let's just see an awesome sign where God shows off. And uh, Christ says this, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. That's not how it works, devil. This isn't some big, some big you know, show where God's just going to put on a bunch of signs. Here's the second thing that we need to see here. Um, the proven Son of God is the one who is sovereign over Satan, not the reverse. He doesn't need to give in to testing the sovereignty of God to show that He is the proven Son of God. So, let's, uh, let's think about this and talk about the sovereignty of God. Since we shouldn't put the sovereignty of God to the test, what we should see here is that we should desire to walk towards the thing of God's and God's wants, not away from Him. Um, we should walk towards His goodness, though those things might be tough. If He's going to restore us, then we should want to... Even though the things look tough, even though the things aren't right, we should always walk into his sovereignty, not away. And that's one of the things that we're, we're seeing here. Um, Satan is asking him to, to not trust the sovereignty of God, to not live in the sovereignty of God, but show signs off to show that he's the Messiah. Um, so we should trust the sovereignty of God here. The second thing is this. Um, this is really disturbing and scary. That Satan quotes Scripture. Satan quotes scripture. So, Satan knows the scriptures. Perhaps even better than you and I, which is a scary thought. Um, so the challenge for us then is to know them as deep and as good as we can so that when he comes and distorts them, that we don't believe these things. Um, the other thing is that he will use the scriptures to try to distort them, to cause us to not want to fight, to cause us to not want to live by them. He can confuse us. And the third thing is that we don't need to put God to the test, as Christ is telling us. Um, one of the things that we can see here is that he's taken these kind of these scriptures out of context and, and throwing them out there saying, see, no matter what, God's going to save you. Um, one of the things that we can learn is this. Um, Whenever Satan uses the scriptures to distort them or, or have them as incorrect, the Protestant reformers called what, what we can learn here is called the analogy of faith, which is that scriptures always are, should be used to interpret other scriptures. Um, the Westminster Confession of Faith says it this way. The infallible rule of interpretation of scripture is scripture itself. Um, and therefore, when there is a question about the true and full sense of any scripture, it must be searched and known by other places that speak more clearly. In other words... Here, whenever you're reading the scriptures and something doesn't seem clear, you're not sure what this means, you're not sure how to interpret that, you always look at the rest of the scriptures to interpret that. Um, you don't just, okay, this says this, I'm going to grab that out, not looking at the rest, and pull that out and just build a whole theology on that. That's what Satan's doing. He's pulling this out. See, you can put your Lord your God to the test and he's going to save you. It's better to look at the entirety of scripture and interpret all scriptures with those. And so that's one of the things we need to see here. All right. Um, the, the next thing I want, to, I want you to see is this. Our sin and our circumstances. Here, 
Jesus could have easily said, all right, well, the plan of God, the eternal plan of God is for me to go to the cross. And since it's the plan of God is for me to go to the cross, um, it seems like I need to kind of show off to show that I'm the Messiah. So I'll give in because he's right. I'll do that. And if I do that, then I'll show everybody that I'm, I'm, the, I'm the son of God. I'm the Messiah. And I'm not going to trust the sovereignty of God that he has a plan that he's going to bear me up. But I'm going to do that. I'm going to give over to Satan's request. He could have done that, but he doesn't. Um, instead, he trusts in the sovereignty of God. He trusts in what can happen where it doesn't seem to be, this seems to be difficult. All right, so here's, here's what I want you to see here, is our sin and our circumstances, this right here did not take God by surprise. This, this temptation did not take the Father by surprise. And it won't take us by surprise when we're going through circumstances, when we're going through tough times. Um, so instead of trusting in uh, Instead of trusting in other things rather than the sovereignty of God, we need to lean into the sovereignty of God whenever circumstances happen. So things happen in your life that you can't explain. Hard times are happening in your life, and you, you feel like the best thing for you to do is kind of take a step back and be like, God, I can't believe these things are happening. Why are these things happening? These things didn't take God by surprise. Your temptations, your circumstances, it's, it's a comfort to know that whenever you're going through life and and difficult times are happening, that these things didn't take God by surprise. And that we should lean in on that, and we should trust God, and not succumb to temptations to not trust in the sovereignty of God. Instead, lean in on His sovereignty and say, okay, you've allowed these circumstances to happen. I'm going to lean in on you and trust you, and let you see me through, and let you be the person that's going to comfort me through this. And I'm just going to let you be God here. All right, so let's go on to verse 8. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these things I will give you if you'll fall down and worship me. Now, this is kind of laughable because who is the devil to offer these things to Jesus? Like, who is the devil to say, I'll just give you all these things if you'll worship me. I got all, all these things are mine. Here they are, like, like they're not already God's. Um, and he says that if you will... If you will fall down and worship me, I will give you all these things. And Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written. Notice again, um, all three times here, Jesus quotes the book of Deuteronomy um, and uses the word to, to scare off Satan. And notice the pattern. He quotes scripture to him, Satan stops that temptation. He quotes scripture to him, Satan stops that temptation. And he says to him, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. So here's the third thing I want us to see. Um, that I believe Matthew is wanting us to see, that the proven Son of God is the only one who's worthy of worship. The proven Son of God is the only one worthy of worship. We can see that in the answer of God, I'm sorry, in the answer of Christ, who is God. You shall worship the Lord your God, and Him only shall you serve. Now, I, I quoted this verse last week, but I just want you to see in Philippians um, that worship is to be due Christ. Um, that God the Father has given um, over to Christ the, um, the right to be worshipped. Look at verse uh, 9 in chapter 2. Therefore God has exalted him, this is Jesus, therefore God has exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. So, every knee should bow, every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord, that God has given over to Christ the one, the, uh, the person that should be worshipped. So we see here that the proven Son of God is the only one who is to be worshipped. Alright. Just a couple applications here then. Um, first is this. 
as we're going through life, it's going to be really easy for us to be tempted to worship created things rather than the Creator. We know that in Romans 1, He tells us um, that we should not worship created things, but we should only worship the Creator. So we should not choose to worship created things over the Creator. Instead, we should only worship Christ. The second thing is this. We should not believe the lie of Satan that causes us or invites us to worship things that don't satisfy. Um, only Christ is the one who can satisfy. He's, he's constantly... Satan is trying to call us out to be satisfied by things in this world. But what we should be seeing here is that our worship and our own and our satisfaction only comes from Christ and Christ him alone. No one else or nothing else. The next thing is this, that worship and service are the only I'm sorry, we should worship and serve the only one who deserves our worship, which is Christ. He says, you shall worship the Lord, your God, and only him shall you serve. As we're going through life, it's going to be easy for us to, whenever um, an, a selfish desire comes in, to feed that or to want to do that or to serve someone because it's going to serve us. But he's telling us that the person that's only to be worshipped, the person that's only to be served is Christ. Now, worship is the end of everything. It is the goal of everything. Let me read a... Uh, let me read a quote to you from, this is a book about missions. And a lot of times as we're going, um, as I'm going through life, I, I, focus through, I focus in on mission. I focus in on seeing people come to Christ so much. I forget that the end goal is worship. This is a book on missions um, by John Piper. This is what he says. Missions is not the ultimate goal of the church. A lot of times it's hard for us to think that because we say we want to go out and see people get saved all the time. He says missions is not the ultimate goal of the church. Worship is. Worship is the ultimate goal of the church. Missions exists because worship doesn't. If everybody was a worshiper, then we wouldn't need to have missions. But he says missions exist because worship doesn't. Worship is ultimate, not missions, because God is ultimate, not man. This is amazing thought right here. When this age is over and the countless millions of all the redeemed fall on their faces before the throne of God, missions will be no more. When we're in heaven... There will be no more evangelism. There will only be worship. And so since missions is temporary and worship is forever, worship is the ultimate. Missions is a temporary necessity, but worship abides forever. So worship is the fuel and goal of missions. So as we go, we're wanting people to become worshipers. We're wanting people to become worshipers. So when we see here... I'm sorry, Matthew telling these Jewish people, Jesus is the proven son of God who's the only one who's worthy of worship. That's helping us see worship is our goal. Worshiping Jesus is our goal. We want to let people, as we're going to do missions, become worshipers of God. We want them to become people who worship God with everything in their life because in the end, when we're in heaven and we're all singing the praises of God, there will be no more evangelism all we'll be doing is worshiping. So as we go into our time now here of worship, remember that what we're doing here is a picture of the eternal. This time that we're going to get together now and, and respond according to the, His Word. Whenever He's revealed Himself to us through His Word, He's shown us who He is. And in the Gospel, He's shown us that He is the one who's come, 
Who is the one who's died for us on the cross? He is the one who bore the wrath of God. He is the one who gave his life so that we can now have life if, by, if we put our faith in Christ. That he's the end goal. Worship of him is the end goal. Service is, yes, what we should do. We, we, need to be, we need to be the people that respond and do things. But the reason why we're doing those things is because we want to be worshipers. So as we go here, as we start now, we're responding to his word to be worshipers. We want to lift high his name. So whichever way God has wired you, know, know this. As we go into worship right now, this is a picture of what it's going to be like for you in heaven. This won't be exactly like it is in heaven, but this is a picture of that. We're going to worship God right now, and we're going to join in with countless people all over the world who are worshiping right now, and countless amount of people in heaven who are seeing him face to face in worship. So if that's the truth, then perhaps right now our worship should look like the way it will look when we're in heaven. It, it can't be perfect. I know that. We're still, in some cases, sinful. We're still, in some cases, not fully redeemed, not fully reconciled. And so we can't worship right now the way that we can worship in heaven one day when we see Him face to face. But we can strive for that right now. Because I've said this over and over. Our worship here fuels our lifestyle worship, and our lifestyle worship fuels our corporate worship. So in whatever way God's wired you, I just want you to respond and worship today. I want you to lift high your hands, or I want you to lift high your voices in the way that God's wired you. I want you to give thanks that Jesus is the proven Son of God. He is the one who endured the temptations. He is the one who endured the cross for all of us to be saved. Let me pray. Lord, I thank you for today. I thank you for your word. And God, I pray that um, as we go into our time of response, as we go into our time of worship, that you would come now and Holy Spirit, fill this room. Fill our hearts. Give us a deep passion and a deep understanding, deeper understanding of the gospel. Give us a deeper thankfulness that you have saved us. As we look at and as we've studied Jesus, the proven Son of God, the one who was willing to go to the cross, He was the the Messiah, the Savior of us. As we contemplate that, awaken our affections for Him because of what He did for us. And help us respond not only in the next 20 minutes as we respond through worship and song, but awaken our affections as we go out and love our neighbors and love our family And love the people around us by proclaiming to them the gospel, by serving them, by being Christ-like to them. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.